Welcome to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast. I'm Michael Hainsworth. The federal government's 2019 budget is being called a pre-election budget with limited economic consequences by Export Development Canada consulting economist and senior fellow at the C.D. Howe, Glenn Hodgson. I had a chance to pick his brain on that and that of the Institute's Rosalie Wanch about why this budget will likely be minimal to the overall economy with no material change to our growth trajectory, particularly at a time when most economists are predicting our biggest trading partner will slip into recession within the next two years. Glenn, you wrote this was a pre-election budget with limited economic consequences. That's pretty surprising considering it is a pre-election budget. Usually these types of budgets get loaded up with goodies. Well, it was certainly full of goodies, Michael, um, but they weren't necessarily goodies that are going to boost the performance of the economy. There was lots of goodies for voters, clearly for the middle class, for folks who uh, may need some support in certain areas, have a wish list of things they want government to do. But I, I look at a budget not only as kind of a, uh, a, a true budget of uh, revenues and spending, but also of the impacts on the economy, on the growth potential, on things like productivity, competitiveness. And this budget really was not focused at the performance of the Canadian economy. It was it was uh, reaching out to interests across the country, some of them very broad, some of them very narrow, and doing what it could to meet their concerns and interests. And I, I would really uh, agree with that. And um, just to pull out a particular example, um, last year's budget took the first steps towards you know, creating an advisory council to implement national pharmacare, and then we had an interim report a few weeks ago. And so, you know, there maybe we could have hoped for some pretty some more information on what the government actually plans to do there, being that it is an election year, and that's probably one of the you know largest policies for um, changes to Canadian healthcare at the federal level. And really, we got. Um, that they were taking the first steps, but realistically it was only a really minor investment this year and everything that actually would have an impact and would likely carry forward into an actual, some sort of national universal pharmacare, all of that has been pushed to pass the election. So it really is up in the air and in the platform, but in terms of what's actually in the budget for this year and moving forward, I would really agree with Glenn that there's a lot of bits and pieces and a lot of little goodies, but you know, nothing jumps out at me as a standalone thing that will help, really help the Canadian economy. And so, uh, and and I guess that there was, I think that there was a bit, a bit of room where they, you know, maybe could have, instead of having all of those little goodies, could have maybe put that together and launched something larger, or if that could have had a larger impact. What you've pointed out before in the C.D. Howe has put a lot of effort and research into the the issue of pharmacare and and the increasing costs to Canadians and to governments provincially and federally when it comes to uh, the rising cost of pharmacare. Does this address, as the Canadian Drug Agency, the issues, the pressures that we're going to face as we have an aging demographic of the boomers? I would say that really depends. Um, there's a few hints in the budget that, um, well, for one thing, this Central Canadian Drug Agency will save some cost and will likely get Canadians access to drugs slightly sooner. And that's simply because we're taking things that used to be regulatory and done in series by different agencies and just putting them all under one umbrella. And so that is actually, in fact, quite a good idea. And it will do... Um, 
access, or it will do something for speeding up access to uh, these drugs, but really the savings, it will depend on what they mean by a comprehensive formulary. It'll depend on how they define the role for uh, private insurance companies. And there's some hints that they may actually be allowing private insurance companies to uh, join in the negotiations for prices. And that would actually be quite significant in terms of lowering costs. Um, but is it enough to, you know, on its own to actually really have an impact on growing healthcare costs? I, I don't think so, because as much as drugs are growing as part of overall health spending, that's, that's also just purely a function of aging. And so there's only so much savings we can get in making things more efficient or lowering prices. So Glenn, Rosalie had pointed out that when you look at the budget, the word innovate or a variation therein shows up 150 times, skills 170 times. The focus doesn't seem to be here on pharmacare as much as it is on trying to focus on the long tail solutions to the problems of the economy. Yeah, those are both really important words for the economy. I mean, economic growth over the long term is driven by demographics, by private investment, which has been really weak in Canada for sort of half a decade, seven or eight years, we've had private investment growth in the low single digits, which is not good for the future because you're actually not building your capital base. And then innovation or productivity growth. So at saying innovation, doing things like uh, creating the Canadian training benefit, where you're actually going to help people invest in their skill development, is good for the long-term performance of the economy, potentially. I mean, the devil's in the detail. You have to do it the right way. But in the near term, it doesn't really address the fact that our economy is slowing down. Uh, we have gaps, and we have some pretty profound competitiveness issues vis-a-vis -vis the Americans, the global economy, how we're going to fit in. And is that tax-related specifically? Yeah, well, it, it, not only tax, but design of programs, how you actually, as much how you spend as, as, as how much you spend. Yeah, and I guess just to uh, add on to that a little bit, the, um, the there really were a few things related to skills in this budget, and I think there's a few of them, well, skills and innovation, and so I guess I'll just highlight a few that I thought were um, probably a good idea, and then maybe some that might not have been may have been more uh, about strategy than actually having an impact on the future of the Canadian economy. And so uh, one, of the, one of the things they've done that actually does make some sense is the um, scientific research and development tax credit. They've uh, removed the income threshold, which basically means that uh, when, when businesses grow, they don't have this large clawback on that benefit for their investments in research and development. Now, I mean, we can go into the issues with the shred credit and how effective it is on its own, but you know, it is a step towards making it uh, more equitable and also maybe not putting the brakes on growth where people actually don't want to raise their income past a certain level because it would, because of the loss of the credit, they may actually, it may end up costing them more. And so we've, they've removed that, which is you know, one, one step in the right direction. In terms of skills, they're making investments into um, you know, post-secondary, um, basically co-op programs, work, work integrated learning, and uh, apprenticeships, and that's that's something that with a red-hot labor market, we do uh, we do see some niche sort of uh, skill shortages developing, and uh, really the the people that are graduating want to find the best job that fits their lifestyle 
the most. And so having more opportunities for work integrated learning can help with the bridging from school to the workforce. And so those are those are two that I would point out as, you know, probably a good idea in addition to the um, you know, learning credit for older workers. One of the ones that I think is uh, you know, ones would help more in the long term, but not so much in the short term would be this uh, dropping of the interest rates on student loans. Because uh, you know, people just going into school, making the choice about whether or not they're going to pursue a post-secondary education, they aren't actually going to benefit from those lower interest rates until they're done. So is that enough of an incentive to maybe shift people from my debt is too expensive to I can I can afford this now when it's a small percentage drop on the interest rate? Well, maybe, maybe not. It would it would be marginal. And it's a very large expense to lower this interest rate. And so really the, most of the benefit immediately lands on people that are graduated and have student debt already. And so this that's helping them pay off their loans, but it's not likely to do anything in term, or it's not likely to be nearly as um, impactful in skill investment. Well, Glenn, then that just brings us full circle back to your point that a lot of the uh, things that are brought into this 2019 budget are long tail solutions to very serious problems, but nothing that helps the economy as we're approaching a slowdown phase. Yeah, if, if you look at the budget as a, I mean, budgets are always political documents, but they're bought for by governments who want to stay in office. And if you look at the budget through kind of a policy filter in terms of the economic impacts, and then a political filter, most of the tech check marks would go in the political filter box. They've done things which are probably good in terms of showing up their 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 political base may help them get reelected. But as you've said a couple times now, the tail in terms of the impact on the economy is very long. You won't feel the impact of uh, ongoing investment, for example, in skill development for three to five years, best case, maybe, maybe longer. You may help people advance their careers beyond an initial job, actually move from a technical role into a more professional role or from professional to management. But that's a very long-term solution. Uh, as opposed to doing things that might actually buttress economic growth today. What is your expectation as far as the Canadian economy is concerned through the course of this particular budget document? Because I think the expectation is we're going to continue to slow down to about 1.9% GDP growth. Well, maybe I should give some background here, Michael. So I've had the benefit, I was actually at Finance Canada for 10 years in my career, Mm -hmm. including a period where I worked for the Deputy Minister, helping to kind of align the pieces. So put a budget together in terms of the the logical sequencing, not the elements themselves. That was really done by different branches in the department. Um, but I was also, for the last 12 years, uh, part of the circle of economists giving advice to the minister on the context, on the sort of providing a forecast, what's the growth base, what's the growth in nominal uh, income, which is a combination of uh, real growth plus inflation. And that's the foundation for ongoing growth. So I've kind of had an inside view um, and is, is, so I always look for the things where I played a role in the past. And the budget says very explicitly, based upon the consensus forecast from the, the private sector, from experts in the banks, for example, in some major associations, uh, they're forecasting growth in Canada this year of only 1.9%. So 1.9% this year and next year, which is consistent with an economy that's moving towards kind of full employment, growing at its potential over time. It's taken us 10 years to kind of get back to this point of potential after the global financial crisis. So we're kind of back to where we were. 
And of course, that reflects what's happening outside Canada as well. I always look at the external environment, what's happening in the United States, for example, and the ongoing trade dispute between China and the United States is slowly taking a bit of the vibrancy out of the world economy. The U.S. economy itself has now predicted to slow down. Uh, in fact, forecasts are getting pulled down every every month. I take a look at what the Fed's saying, at what major forecasters on, on Wall Street are saying. They're actually dragging down the U.S. forecast. It's now down to sort of a consensus of 2.1% this year. So all that really reinforces the fact that we're looking at an economy in Canada that's not going to be as robust going forward, growing at 1.9%. Um, and the kind of budget measures that are, are taken are great. Uh, frankly, I think they're good politics for the most part. Um, they And they may have that long tail payback. They're not going to do a whole lot in the short term to shore up our economy. So we may well have to live in Canada with an economy growing at less than 2% for some time to come because of the impact of what's happening outside and also because of demographic forces inside. And that's the foundation on which you build a, a budget because that then drives revenues. Most people focus on the spending side. I also look at the revenue side. And revenue growth this year and going forward is not going to be as robust as it's been in the past. It might be helpful to, um, you know, just to talk about expenses and revenue and maybe some of the actual budget things or things that are fundamental to a budget. And one of the things that the current government had initially promised was to keep deficits under $10 billion per year. And so just with this new, um, this new budget coming out and... You know, they, they actually had a windfall in revenues. They had more revenues than they were expecting. Uh, so just, just sort of to take a look at sort of, you know, where this is an election year budget. So let's look back to the first budget of this government and look at 2016. And what, what was this government predicting for this year in 2016? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so I did actually just do a quick number crunch on that. That's really good analysis. So to actually do the comparison over time and how the how the goalposts keep getting moved, huh? Yeah. So there has been some moving of the goalposts. Uh, so um, comparing the 2016 federal budget projections to those of the newly released budget for this fiscal year, um, the 2016 projections show uh, lower revenues, expenses, and budget deficit than the most recent projection. The cost of debt is actually. Um, $6.6 billion lower than the government was expecting in 2016. However, you know, that, that growth in revenue and the uh, savings on our expected debt costs have not been uh, enough to overcome that growth in spending. And it actually translates to the deficit of, that we see in this budget of $19.8 billion. In 2016, they were projecting a deficit that was a full $2 billion less than that. And there was a, a windfall that we had seen through 2016, 2017, into 2018 as well, that instead of that being applied to the, the, the debt and bringing down our carrying costs, we just continued to throw more money into the economy at various programs. Glenn, is it your assertion that we should have been saving for a rainy day in this budget? Yeah, I, I, I'm a big believer that when the economy is growing, yeah, fairly ro robust growth, that's the time to really aim for a balanced budget to, to, to cap and even bring down your debt service charges. And also, it's all, for me, it's almost like sort of recharging the cannon, getting ready for the next recession. There will be other recessions. Uh, most governments automatically go into deeper deficit during a recession simply because 
as the economy contracts, your revenues go way down and you sort of tumble into deficit. And then if you want to add a bit of stimulus to sort of kickstart the economy, you end up with a, you know, we had a, a deficit of $50 billion or more back in 2009-10 as a way to kickstart our economy. So I, I think this very long view uh, of uh, when your economy's growing, don't keep running little deficits and adding to debt. And, and to Rosalie's point, even if your debt, debt service costs are under control because of lower interest rates, because you maybe have overestimated where rates are going, uh, that's still no excuse for kind of long, good long-term counter-cyclical policy, where you bounce the books in the good times, and then it gives you the capacity to actually step up and add stimulus in the long term. I, I like the fact that the debt ratio is falling over time we, we're, because the economy is growing, um, and we're, we're more or less keeping the, the deficits under control within the, the, the capacity of a growing economy. But I think it would be even better if we actually had a hard plan to balance the books and then give us capacity, more capacity to move, to, to add additional stimulus when it's really required. You bring up an interesting point about the debt-to-GDP ratio of the envy of the G7, I can only imagine. It is the envy of the G7, but of course, we're a federation, and our provinces can borrow in their own name. Um, they theoretically, at least, don't have any guarantee from the federal government when they borrow. So if you're a taxpayer in Quebec or in Ontario, you're paying not just federal debt, you're also paying provincial debt. So rather than doing the G7 comparison of national governments, we really have to do an all-in comparison. So, you know, other federations like Germany, for example, you have to look at the German federal government plus what the lander are doing. Same thing in the U.S. And when you add together, say, in Ontario, you've got a federal um, debt ratio of around, what, 32 percent today, Rosalie? Uh, yeah, it was 32 or 33, I thought. It was 32 and provincial debt ratio of, what, 42-ish today? Uh, it was a little over 40, yeah. The total cost of carry from Ontario taxpayer at around 73, 75% of GDP. So if you do that all in comparison, you suddenly don't look quite as good compared to the G7 and lots of other countries. We are thinking ahead to the next recession. First of all, what is your expectation on that front? And how does that relate to what we see in budget 2019 for the millennial generation that is now being encouraged that much more to take on debt themselves and get into the housing market? Well, here you're making me feel really badly as a boomer. <laughs> no, I'm I, I'm a mid-boomer. I was born in 1955, and the baby boomers have clearly been able to take advantage of very strong growth early in their working lives. Uh, we've had ups and downs in interest rates, but we 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 bought homes when the prices were were much lower in real terms than they are today. If you tell us that you've paid off your mortgage, my friend, I don't think Rosalie's ever going to want to talk to you again. <laughs> okay, so I won't tell you that. <laughs> but you can draw your own conclusions. So, listen, if, if you bought a house in – I, we bought our first house in 1988 for a price well under $200,000 in the Ottawa market. And Ottawa was a nice market that chugs along. So, you know, I, I've been able to accumulate a lot of wealth, as most boomers did, in our most important asset, our home. Whereas the millennials coming along, and I have two sons who are in their 20s, are, are really stretched. I mean, they clearly have are taking on heavier debt burdens. We've seen the debt-to-income ratio go from about 110 percent uh, 15 years ago to kind of 170 today. And rates are low, which is why the cost of carry has been very low for most of the last decade. But with the upkeep in interest rates, you have to worry about your ability to carry that debt. And yet the budget added so, – so the budget tried to help millennials with a, a home purchase by saying they're going to – the federal government is going to share the cost of a down payment 
Um, the first 10% up to some dollar amount, I believe, Rosalie, in the budget. I think that it sounds good, but it, I, um, I'm a little bit more skeptical as a millennial that does not own a house and lives in Toronto, that this would actually be a helpful measure because the cutoff is a household income of 120000 and only up to, four, uh, up to a mortgage of four times that value. And so just thinking about what... What could you buy for 400 some odd grand in Toronto? Yeah, I mean, the, the type of home you can buy for under $500,000 in Toronto is, you know, maybe not exactly what um, people are thinking when they hear that it's going to be easier to buy a house. And, you know, so that's not to discount that this will be a helpful measure probably in lots of areas in the country where the housing market isn't quite so hot. But in the area, sort of the, you know, core urban areas. Well, Toronto's 20% of the country's GDP. Exactly. It's one of those things that, you know, I just looked at that measure and sort of thought, well, that's very nice, but it doesn't help me at all. And so that one was one, you know, I was looking at that sort of on a personal level, not so much as my unbiased, nonpartisan economist self, um, but as a millennial that lives in Toronto that would would like to eventually purchase a home, hopefully, maybe, but we'll see. Um, but really with, with that as well, I think that there's, um, you know, they, they had the um, lowering of the interest rate for people that have student debt. So I guess when I'm saying that it may not do much for skills, I will add on to that and say, well, you know, it may help with the debt burden and the maintenance costs of debt as interest rates are rising for the people that are now sort of moving into that late 20s, early 30s, wanting, wanting to purchase homes. So it may actually help them a bit there, but you know, it's one of those when we put in new mortgage rules to lower the risk on consumer debt in the economy overall, and then literally, you know, about a year later, we uh, sort of take take that back and give this sort of relief. But through the thing that ensures our mortgages in the first place, I mean, I haven't had the time to really work it out all of the angles on it. But to me, it seems like we remove risk, and then this potentially is then, as you said, encouraging people to take on debt. And so if, it, the re, if this is the result of those changing mortgage rules, then I just wonder, is it, in fact, a risky thing to do? And Glenn, there's been criticism as well that this actually, these measures will actually decrease the purchasing power of someone who is willing to jump into the housing market. It may well, but I, I, I agree with Rosalie on the fundamental point, which is, here we got a debt problem in terms of personal indebtedness, and we're already seeing signs that as interest rates were rising, people were starting to fall underwater. And the solution is to encourage them to take on more debt. <laughs> so you, you wonder about that. And then there's a fundamental about the Southern Ontario housing market. Vancouver too? Calgary? Vancouver, and there's no perfect solution. Um, uh, you know, in, in, For an economist, the solution would, would be more supply. But which becomes you have to get really close to the ground and look at the, the the local market conditions. What you can do to make more land available? Are we going to encourage even more towers to go up and you know along the waterfront in in, in Toronto? But um, for me, the fundamental point of you've got you've got a problem with people with too much debt, and so you encourage them to take on more debt. That's you you have to wonder about that as a solution. Innovation came up one hundred and fifty times in one way, shape, or form. Just the fun fact there, when I kind of went down this word cloud rabbit hole, is actually innovation comes up 153 times. The word expense only comes up 146. Uh, and skill comes up 168. And indigenous comes up 378. So we can we can definitely see what the, at least what the language priorities are. Um, 
but you know, it's not all bad for the word cloud. The word business does come up 250 times. So just sort of, uh, you know, looking at these, uh, the frequency of words, obviously it's not a particularly accurate measure of government policy, but it does give you some signals as to the overall priorities. And um, just sort of when we were talking earlier about how this budget is full of goodies, um, one thing that I kind of uh, wanted to point out is that we've got a ton of boutique investments in particular areas of healthcare or particular areas of research. And, you know, realistically for innovation, you should use a, a light touch sort of on directing where the funds for R&D go or what projects people are going to work on. And so if there's, if there's this sort of funding is only going to, we're going to look at specifically stem cell research. You know, I'm not saying that that's not a good place to put money, but I think that the government choosing the particular areas in which we want to innovate is through boutique grant funding may not be actually the most efficient way to uh, use the government's R&D dollars. You want the uh, invisible hand of the markets to decide what the most important areas are? Well, or at least that uh, if research funding is going to be given out, that it's, you know, allocated in a competitive way where it's open, where, you know, if it's going to be the stem cell network or the Brain Canada Foundation, that they, you know, that other foundations or other institutions that may be doing research in this area have an equal chance to compete because then it really becomes down comes down to the merit of the research and the merit of the potential for it. And so um, it's just one of those that the market can determine to a certain extent where the R&D dollars should go. And so that some of those goodies are a little bit, um, you know, individually they all could be fine, but it's just sort of the way in which the government has chosen to invest in R&D, sort of signals of picking winners as, opposing, as opposed to letting the market decide uh, where that where those R&D dollars should go. And, you know, that in some cases that can be areas where something would be underfunded. And so maybe that's prudent. But I think that as an overall strategy for investing in research, it does it kind of um, signals a whack-a-mole approach where it's like, this is the big issue this year, so we're going to invest here. And research is really a multi-year process. It's iterative. And you know these things don't happen overnight. We aren't going to cure cancer this year because of one investment in one particular cancer foundation. That's just not how innovation works. Um, but on on the uh, on the regulatory side, they um, there seems to be at least um, some new some new movement in you know, making it more user-friendly, um, using more novel and experimental approaches. And I think that that actually is something that, you know, we don't know what that will be yet because it's basically the government has said that there will be roadmaps that propose greater exploration, innovation, and the use of sandboxes and pilot programs for new innovative products. And so, the, I mean, there's not much detail in there, but the openness to a regulatory sandbox is something that I'm looking forward to seeing developed. It's it's one of the hints in the budget of something yet to come that might be interesting, but really there's not enough there to say it's a good idea or a bad idea, but I just would throw, uh, throw out just a nod to the idea of using regulatory sandboxes to allow for experimentation and innovation in areas that are maybe difficult to 
access because of regulatory barriers. And then on the counterpoint that picking and choosing winners and losers for where the research dollars are going to go may not be the best way to get the best bang for your buck. But that being said, if it's a particular goal, maybe that's the way to go. Glenn, this just comes full circle back to what you described in your notes uh, to the CD Howe and to concerned Canadians as you addressed it is that these are long-tail solutions to economic problems, and they will fuel growth down the road. Is there anything in this budget document that gives you optimism that it's going to help us in the near term as the American elephant sneezes and we're the ones that catch the cold? Yeah, this is really a long game that's being played in the budget. I mean, it's near-term aimed at a political solution to ensure that you have continuity in terms of politics. But I, and, and there are, there, I'm sure there are things. If you, the budget is 460 pages long. At one point at about 200, page 200, there's a table showing you all the spending uh, actions. And Rosalie, I'm sure you found it. It goes on for four pages, <laughs> line by line items. So if I got out a fine tooth comb and went through all those lines, I'm sure I could find something that may have a bit of a positive effect on short-term growth. But if you really want to affect growth, I mean, you have to think about things like tax competitiveness. Um, the, the budget theme around tax is all around tax fairness and cutting down tax avoidance, not about rethinking the tax system, for, for example. So, as you said, the long tail is the focus and the short-term politics, but things that are going to boost our growth the performance this year and next, it's, it, the budget's quite short on that. The biggest single spend in this budget is the $8 billion over time for Indigenous peoples in this country. Yeah. That strikes me as um, money that's well needed in these communities. I don't think anyone can deny that this is critical. Um, does this help? Is this really going to go long term uh, to the needs of these communities? And what does it tell you that this was addressed in this budget at this time when you call every budget a political document? I noted that in, in my briefing for, for C.D. Howe. I think, as you said, Michael, it'd be very hard to say those aren't, that's not spending that's required right now. Focus on clean water, for example. Most people in southern Canada would not tolerate a situation where you have boil water advisories where you have to actually boil your drinking water before you can use it. So clearly an investment is required in things like water quality, in housing quality. Uh, we clearly have to do things to ensure that more and more Indigenous kids actually graduate from high school. Their graduation rate is only 50%. So probably absolutely appropriate, but not a long-term fix. I mean, there's a really fundamental issue there about the role of Indigenous people in our, in our society going forward. And it's hard to say, you know, you would not want to be trillish about spending $8 billion where there's a real cry need. It's particularly beneficial for the Indigenous communities, but there's uh, sort of certain challenges with Canada just being a gigantic country that is mostly wilderness. And that, you know, investments in Indigenous communities are also inherently investments in a diversified economy and more investment in outside of the urban environment and you know with the red hot housing markets in the city and particularly you know in small communities sometimes they're they're particularly faced with these labor shortages i think that there is definitely um you know good principles behind the idea of investing in rural and remote communities in the different in different cultures and actually making sure that you know, the, the things that cause the divide 
between the Indigenous community and the government of Canada. Those those are gaps that exist, and so there is there it will cost money and will take time and work to start closing that gap, and that's very much something that we should be doing. And also just sort of to add to the benefit that it's not purely just for the Indigenous community. If we get more, if more people from those communities graduate high school, go to university, then you know that that just really becomes part of the overall labor supply, and Canada will be better for it. Yeah, or or have the skills to stay on reserve, stay in the north, uh, but have skills that can be applied in resource extraction, for example, or local service provision, whether it's healthcare or in mining or in in forestry. Those are all areas where you can. And there's already a crying need for increases in the workforce available in in rural Canada. Glenn, thank you very much for your time. It was great. Rosalie, thank you for your time. Always fun. Glenn Hodgson is an independent economist and fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute. Special thanks to the CD House Rosalie Watch for her insight and analysis. For more on Budget 2019, visit cdhow.org. April 2nd, the CD Howe Institute hosts a dinner with Robert S. Kaplan, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas at the National Club. On Tuesday, April 2nd, we'll discuss the assessment of economic conditions and implications for monetary policy. And April 11th, Innovation and the City. At the CD Howe, our luncheon with Daniel Dockroff, the Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Sidewalk Labs, is guaranteed to be standing room only. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the CD Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhowe.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.